So what we're going to do over this series is we're going to look at an Old Testament story and parallel it with a New Testament story and maybe find some themes and some similarities and take a look at the two um, different stories. A lot of people say to me, oh, the Old Testament, it's just boring, it's all about rules and I don't really enjoy it. And, and I am just, I'm the opposite. I love the Old Testament. I love it. I just find it so fascinating and so I want I want to start by sharing a story uh, from the Old Testament, from the book of Esther. Now, a lot of people might say, oh, you can't find God's name anywhere in the book of Esther. And that is true. But I do want to encourage you that as you read the book of Esther, you can find God's characteristics on every single page of the book of Esther because God's character is reflected in Esther and in Mordecai. And we're going to get to that. So I'm going to paraphrase a whole lot of the beginning of the book of Esther. And I've got a few scriptures that I'll show along the way just so that we're tracking together with this incredible story. So Esther 1.1, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. And so King Xerxes, his kingdom was this vast Persian empire that actually spread across three million square miles. And in modern day terms, it would be like looking at the map and seeing Ethiopia and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and India. Like this was a massive group of provinces. And in those days, it was called provinces and now we call them countries. But this King Xerxes, he was the king. He was the leader over this whole empire, this Persian Empire. And so when your empire is that big and there's that many people in your empire, you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of taxes. And so King Xerxes was very, very wealthy, very, very rich. And he loved to throw extravagant parties and to show off the opulence and the extravagance of his wealth. And so he had this celebration that lasted six months. It was 180 days, and he invited princes and nobles and people to come and to participate in this celebration. And so they would like drink from golden goblets and there was no limits to anything, to the alcohol, to the splendor, to the opulence. It was flashy and elaborate. And so this one night towards the end of the celebration, the king drinks too much. And it actually says that he is merry with wine, which means the guy drank too much. And he's not thinking straight. And he demands that his queen Vashti be brought before him so that he can show her off. Basically, he wants to show off his trophy wife because she was this beautiful woman. And so the queen turns him down. Now, you might be thinking, well, that was a silly move, but let's keep the context here. This girl has been getting dressed up and been pranced around for six months. The celebration has been going on. And I would imagine, I mean, even me, and I'm a social butterfly, after six months, I'd be like, I just want a night in my pajamas. You know, like, could you just chill out and leave me alone? And uh, the king just won't have any of that. He wants to show off his trophy wife before the other princes. And so his motives are pretty great gross um, in what he was trying to do. 
and he was intoxicated, right? And so the queen turns him down and is like, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to come. And so this terrible thing happens. The king overreacts, really acts so immaturely, gets mad, uh, dethrones Queen Vashti, and banishes her. And so this is where, in our story of Esther, this is where she enters in, because now we need a new queen. All right. And so the king sends, oh, let's, you know, gather the beautiful women of the provinces and let's give them beauty treatments and let's bring them before the king so that he can choose his new wife. And in verse uh, 217, it says, And the king loved Esther more than any of the other women. He was so delighted with her that he set a royal crown on her head and declared that she was the queen instead of Ashti. So we've got a few queens here. We've got Queen Vashti. She's gone, banished. We've got, now got Queen Esther, who has this beauty, but also is favored and has this moral character. And then we have the third queen, and this one is actually our drama queen, and this is Haman. He is the villain of our story, and he shows up in chapter 3, and he's the most powerful man beside the king. He has the most influence, and he's the advisor to the king. And this guy really is a drama queen. He loves everything splashy and opulent. And he's all about reputation. He's all about what people think of him. And he has got a hate on for the Jews. All right. And this starts because Esther's uncle, uncle, sorry, his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is this fantastic guy. He is moral. He's ethical. He's a guard at the king's gate. And he even stops a plot one time um, against the king and saves the king's life. So, so Mordecai is a really good man, okay? He is moral and ethical. And here, Haman, our drama queen, our villain, is not moral and ethical. And uh, this one time he's passing by Mordecai, and Mordecai will not bow down before Haman, and that just gets under Haman's skin. He just can't handle that. And so he decides that not only is he going to hate Mordecai for all of the rest of his life, but he's going to hate everybody that belongs to Mordecai's family. So I know most of us could probably say like there's some people that we've had experience with that haven't treated us well and we're like yeah I'm not really a fan of that person but to actually hate their whole family this is what Haman does he hates every single person that belongs to the family of Mordecai and so he plots against the Jews because Mordecai was a Jewish man and so Haman approaches the king and says there's these people you know, we should probably get rid of them. They're becoming a little bit of a problem. You know, I think this could turn into something a bit more challenging. And so they're not obeying your laws and they're not following you. And we should probably just get rid of them. We should, you know, we should eliminate them. We should just kill them, right? We should just like get rid of the problem. And Haman only gives the king part truth right? He doesn't give the full truth. He tells the king what the king will want to hear so that Haman can get what he wants. Now, have you ever done that? Have you ever told a half-truth? Or have you ever embellished something in order to get what you want? I, uh, I know we probably haven't done it to the extent that Haman did, of course, right? Going after a people group, but I think we've all embellished a story to get what we want. 
So what happens next is that the king agrees to wipe out the Jewish people. He believes this half-truth, the half-story, and he says, sure. And so you kind of might wonder, like, why? Why would he agree? Well, the king doesn't want his kingdom to be threatened by a group of people, right? If these people aren't going to obey him, they're not going to obey his laws, it's going to create problems. So let's just squash out the problem before it becomes a problem, right? Let's just annihilate that group of people so that it never actually becomes a problem. And so a decree is written uh, by Haman, and it's um, sealed by the king, and it's sent in everyone's language all over the provinces of Asia, that three million square miles, and it tells the people that they have a duty. They have a duty on an appointed day to do something. And in verses 313, it says, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. It wasn't enough just to say that, you know, we're going to kill them, but, or, or just annihilate them. It's like killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. Like, it's very clear the purposes here of what needs to be done. And this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. And this, this decree was given out probably in about April. So this is about 11 months later, so that every single person in the provinces would be able to get that written notice that this was their duty. This this is what needed to happen on the 7th of March, that every Jew, Jew needed to be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on that day. And the property of the Jew would be given to those that killed them. You know, I never noticed that scripture until this last time I was looking at this. The property of the Jew would be given to those who killed them, right? So, so what this decree is saying is that the non-Jews, so the Persian people that were not Jewish, it was their duty to kill a Jewish person on March 7th. And so these decrees were sent out, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So that's the city of where they were, their capital city. And of course it's in confusion, right? Let's pause for a second and let's just look at this. There's this order to kill all the Jews, every single one of them on March 7th. So if you are a Jewish person, you've just been given your death sentence. You've just been told the day that you're going to die if you are a Jewish person. And it doesn't matter if you are moral or ethical, if you are a mom, if you are a child, if you are a dad, if you are the captain of the hockey team, it does not matter if your bloodline connects you to Jewish heritage and ancestry, you are scheduled to die on March 7th, right? And why was this? Because Haman hated one man. He hated one Jew. And because he hated one Jew, he said, I'm going to take out all of that people group, right? The property of the Jews would be given to the people who had done the killing. So if I'm Jewish... Not only do I know the day that I'm scheduled to die, but now I'm being stalked and hunted, right, by the people that are around me that are not Jewish, that it's their duty to kill me because they're going to want to kill somebody and pick somebody that has a lot of wealth, 
right? You're going to pick somebody who's got property, who's got sheep and animals. And if you put it in modern day terms, it would be you'd pick the person that you know has a few vehicles and maybe they got a nice boat in the driveway and they got, you know, a big house. You're going to pick that Jewish person. There's a guy down the street from us and uh, he has one of those garages that has like an elevator in it. And so it's a double-decker garage. And so he has like two cars, two cars, two cars. One's a Lotus, one's a Ferrari, one's a Hummer. Trust me, if he was a Jew on this day, he would have been a target, right? People would have been staking out his property. And there probably would have been fights outside. Like, no, 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 I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him, right? This is what was going to happen on March 7th. They would all be waiting for this day of doom to get the Jewish guys that were the wealthiest. And if you're not a Jew, so what if you're just a Persian person, right? You're not a Jew. You are friends with a Jewish family. You're like, well, pff, there's no sense having them over for supper because they're dead in six months, right? Like, why, why even get connected? Kids, don't play with the Jewish kids because, you know, their life is running out, Right? Because it would have been their duty to kill their friends. Of course the country was in confusion. Of course the Persian Empire is in confusion. And the people are upset. And again, what was the motive behind a genocide? To kill thousands and thousands of people? It was because one person didn't like one person, right? Haman, our villain, our drama queen didn't like Mordecai. Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman, and that was it. That was enough to trigger Haman to push his buttons, right? All of his pride, his reputation, his position, his power, all those buttons were pushed, and he comes up with this plot. And for the king, he believes a lie and agrees to have this people group wiped out from the face of the earth. You see, I think it's easy to look at this story and kind of think, oh, you know, these people, like, oh, how terrible, how terrible, and to, you know, keep it separate from us. But we know in our own society that we see differences in our skin color, in religion, in wealth, in education. Do you have the passport, the vaccination passport? Are you vaccinated? Are you not? We see our differences, right? And we let our differences divide us. We feel threatened. It threatens our own security or insecurity, and we lash out, and we respond in hatred and sin, and Haman did it, and Xerxes did it, and unfortunately, we do it too. And so I want to ask you a question. I want you to write this down, and this is also on the free resource, but I want you to think about this. When you're talking with friends and family, do you quickly see your differences or do you look for things that you have in common? Man, let's look for things that we have in common. Let's not look for our differences. But I want you to write that question down, and I want you just to take a few minutes, and I want you to think about that. Let's really self-evaluate. Do I look for differences? Does it matter to me? If you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, the color of your skin, your address, does it matter, those things? Are they differences that separate us? 
or do I look for the things we have in common? It's a good question. I hope you take time to pray about it and think about it. We're going to take a look now at the New Testament story, and this is out of Matthew 2, and we're starting at verse 1. And I want to show you, there's another story here of a king who um, is a little messy, uh, but love makes a way. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem near Jerusalem during the reign of King Herod. After Jesus' birth, a group of spiritual priests, these are the wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and inquired of the people, where is the child who was born king of the Jewish people? We observed his star rising in the sky and we've come to bow before him in worship. Now hundreds of years have gone from the story of Esther to this story now of Jesus. And so we have a different empire, different leaders, different rulers. And here we have King Herod. And it says in verse 3, King Herod was shaken to the core when he heard this. And not only he, and, and note this scripture. This is another one. I'm like, where did this one come from? I've never seen this before. <laughs> it's like it just got added. But all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard this news. Okay, so again, we have a king. Now we have King Herod, who who has seen a threat to his kingdom, right? The wise men, the spiritual advisors are like looking for this king who's been named the king of the Jewish people. And Herod is threatened. And it's kind of ridiculous because he's the appointed king of the Roman government, right? The Romans are in power, not the Jews. And and this word is that there's a Jewish king, but it doesn't matter. Just that word king is enough to trigger our king. Herod and he's just like okay okay like he's he's shaken to the core because there's this prophecy and this word that there is this king of the Jews you see he believes that anybody is a threat that's what King Herod thinks I think it's just characteristics of kings hey like they're just really insecure and really want to protect their position and their empire and he doesn't want to jeopardize his reputation or authority or lifestyle or comfort or have anybody upstage him. And so Herod is so suspicious, right? Shaken to the core. And he's acting just like Haman and Xerxes from our Esther story. Well, just like the Esther story, the city is thrown into confusion. And, and I, I was so fascinated by this. It says all of Jerusalem was disturbed by the news the Messiah had been born. Why was everybody in Jerusalem disturbed? They had been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for the promised Messiah. And here there was this promise. Why were they disturbed, right? It doesn't say they were excited. It doesn't say that they were anticipating. Disturbed, right? Like they were uncomfortable. They did not like that this uh, word had been given that the king of the Jews had been born. And to understand this a little deeper, we got to look a little bit at the history of Jerusalem. Now, years and years prior, we had King David, and he goes into Jerusalem, and he takes this sleepy little town of Jerusalem, and he turns it into something magnificent, something fantastic. And then he passes the responsibility onto his son Solomon, who like builds the temple of God, and the city of Jerusalem was 
full of splendor, right? It was just an architectural wonder. It was this beautiful city. And the Israelite Jewish people were so proud of this city. They loved this city. Then in the 6th century BC, King Nebuchadnezzar comes along and destroys all of Jerusalem. The temple of God, the beauty, the buildings, and all of the people are carted off and taken into exile. And generation after generation, they try to go back. They try to rebuild Jerusalem to what it was, but it just never gets there. Then King Herod shows up. King Herod is a master builder. And he transforms the city back into the splendor and the opulence of what it was. He builds palaces and an amphitheater and monuments and bridges. And he makes the city of Jerusalem back into this spectacular place. There's the temple of God. And so the people love it, right? Because there's this idolization of the city of Jerusalem. And so I kind of wondered, as I was reading and studying this this week, is it possible that the people of Jerusalem were so disturbed by the news of the Messiah, of the king, because they were so fixated on what they could see in front of them. They were so fixated on King Herod, the amphitheater, the buildings, the bridge down the street, their own homes, their own comfort, they were more concerned about what things looked like on the outside, right? The status, the prestige, the reputation, and all of these things were more important, more significant than the news that the Messiah had come. I mean, if we look at the responses of the wise men, this is a small group, small group of guys that are looking for the Messiah, and they're looking up, they're watching, they're looking for this star that's directing them, and they're looking up, they're watching, right? They're looking up to follow God, and they find the Messiah. Whereas the people of Jerusalem, the thousands and thousands of people of Jerusalem, are worshiping the comfort, and they're looking down and around, and they can see their city that is so great. They can see Herod that is such a great builder and leader, and they're missing that the Messiah has been born in a manger. And, and let me remind you, Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, is only about 10 kilometers to Jerusalem. And so I did like a little bit of looking on a map, and that's basically like Cedars Christian School, so like the Park Hill Center to College Heights. That's about 10 kilometers. That's how far it was from Bethlehem right, to Jerusalem. So if there's a star over Bethlehem, if there's a star over College Heights, would you be able to see it at the Park Hill Center? Yeah, you would. Yeah, you would. So the people of Jerusalem, I believe, would have been able to see that star that was over Bethlehem. It was like a neon light right in front of them. Here, the Messiah has been born, the King of the Jews. And the people of Jerusalem, they missed it. They were so busy looking here, and they weren't looking up that they missed it. And you know, even in humanity's messiness, when we have a huge star guiding us <laughs> that's right in front of our face, and yet it seems to be invisible, even when we look around at our surroundings, 
love finds a way. God will find a way. And the reason I wanted to look at these two different stories and and these kings that have similar personality traits isn't to point a finger at them, but it's actually for us to take a look at our own heart and do some self-examination. I mean, we don't have kingdoms that we're trying to protect, but let's be honest, we have comforts, don't we? We have reputations. We have status. We have prestige. We have things that we like to protect at all cost. There are people that might threaten our position, and we don't like that. There's things that get in the way of us looking up for the wonder and the majesty of our Messiah. And we are no different than the people in Jerusalem. We miss the star so many days. We've bowed to possessions over the Prince of Peace. And maybe for some of us, if we're perfectly honest, we would say that Jesus has called us to leave our home, the comfort of our warm home, the status, the title, the stuff, the safety, and follow him into the mission field. And that might be across the street to our neighbor's house, or it might be across the globe. But what we've done is that we, we know there's a call but we put our hands over our ears, right? Because our comfort zone is more important and has a higher priority than our Christ zone, right? We've bowed to possessions and comfort over the Prince of Peace. Or maybe we've stayed stuck and we need to make peace with our past. We've believed the lies for so long that we need to strive more or earn more, right? Or that if we've, if we've had a rotten life, it's because we deserve it, right? That we don't deserve good things to happen to us. And so we settle. We just don't think that we're valuable, right? And that we'll ever be healthy or contribute. And those are lies. And when we don't make peace with our past, we get stuck, And I'm pretty sure every one of us could put our hand up, you know? We've gotten stuck because we don't make peace with our past. And and here's the thing, is that love makes a way. God's going to use us. God's going to make a way. But trust me, when we make peace with our past, it's going to be easier. It's going to be easier for you, and it's going to be easier for the people around us. You know, Jesus, I believe every single day is like lay down those addictions, lay down those distractions, make peace with your past so that you're not looking to all of those things to fill you up. If your addiction is alcohol or lust or approval or people-pleasing or power, God wants us to get unstuck. But that means that we are dealing with our past. Jesus did not go to the cross so that we would stay stuck in our sin. He's like, it's so easy. Repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Tell other people that you forgive them. Forgive people who have hurt you. Forgive yourself for your own hurts and step into forgiveness. When we do this, we deal with our past and it frees us up to be able to love radically. And you know, it takes the bravery and courage of Esther to be able to forgive, but God calls every single one of us to it. We all have a story. 
we all have hurts, right? We all have something traumatic that's happened. And we all have the ability to make peace with our past. And when we do, it opens doors to more love. And the last one I just wanted to share was that we've sought position over each other. We've used each other to get ahead. And this happens inside the church and outside the church. And outside the church, it's almost like it's kind of acceptable to make fun of somebody or to push somebody down or to ridicule them in public because there's this like ridiculous lie that it's going to make you feel better, that you're going to look better if you push somebody else down. And inside the church, we, we've often had these systems where we think you're more spiritual if... If you speak in tongues, right, you're more spiritual. And we have like these levels and, and these ideas of, of pushing somebody down so that we can get higher. And, and I just don't even understand it, but for so many, the stage is the goal. The spotlight is the goal. And it breaks my heart because it's not the goal. We're here to worship Jesus and if I crave this stage, woe is me. I repent because I'm here to worship Jesus. I've been created to be a worshiper of God, and that's what I want to do for my whole life. So let's stop positioning each other or pushing somebody down thinking that we're going to get elevated and lifted up. Jesus is so radical. He doesn't do anything the way the world does it. So this idea that if we push somebody down, it's going to lift us up is false. Jesus will not honor that kind of behavior. What he loves is a servant heart. He loves the one who is in the background, who never needs to be on the stage, but is serving with their whole heart. Jesus loves that in us. And so what does Jesus say about all of this? Well, he says, if you want to have peace in your life, then you need to allow God's love to make a way in your life. And God is a miracle worker, isn't he? He is a way maker. And we know in the story of Christ's birth in Matthew that I shared that love finds a way. God knew the evil heart of Herod. He knew that Herod felt threatened and God spoke to those wise men, those spiritual advisors, so that they wouldn't tell King Herod uh, where the Messiah was. And those spiritual guys, those advisors, they responded to God. They heard God and they responded to him. Love finds a way and love found a way for the light of Christ to keep moving through the redemptive God story. Love finds a way. And you know, back to our Esther story, she summons up the courage to speak to the king about the evil plans of Haman. His plot against the Jewish people is squashed, and Esther saves her people. The Jewish people were safe. They were not annihilated. Esther responded to God, and love found a way. Even in conflict and turmoil and difficulty and division, you know, we think we got it tough in this place. 
There's no people group being threatened. <laughs> Esther had a difficult position and love found a way. If God can find a way through Esther, God can find a way through us. He can find a way through our circumstances. You know, the woman at the well with Jesus, he, he, he told her everything she's ever done. She turned around and became this incredible evangelist. Why? Because God finds a way. And God finds people that are willing to have their hearts and their hands open and say, you know what? I'm willing to deal with my past. I'm willing to surrender my life. I'm willing to let go of me. <laughs> I'm going to get me out of the way. <laughs> and God loves those kinds of people. And I hope, church, my beloved family, I hope that's you. I hope that's me, that God will find a way through us. Jesus' actions showed love. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He preached the good news. He cast out demons. He prayed for those around, around him. And he gave life for every single one of us. Jesus makes a way. He says, love each other just as I have loved you. See, you must love each other. This is how you will know you are my disciples when you love each other, John 13. And so I challenge you today, let's not hear the word and not let it transform our hearts. Let's respond to it. What if you were to lay down your desire for possessions and stuff? What if you dealt with your past and forgave? What if you let the craving that you have to get ahead be surrendered and left it at the cross with Jesus Christ? What if you dealt with your stuff? I'm telling you, when you love others, you will love more radically. You will love your husband, your wife, your siblings, your children. When you have dealt with your stuff, it opens the doors for love to make a way. It doesn't mean it's impossible before. But it's like a slippery, um, slippery slip and slide, right? You know, the, the water on the slip and slide, and you just slip right through it. That's what happens when we deal with our stuff, when we surrender ourselves, is love just like slips on through us, and we can just love on to other people. I just loved the song today, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And what an incredible gift this Christmas to give to Jesus your heart and to surrender everything to him. To draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I'm going to stop making excuses. Enough is enough. I'm going to step into obedience right here, right now. I'm going to deal with my stuff because I want love to find a way through me. We just finished this sermon series called Winning the War in My Mind. And in that series, we had some incredible tools that help us overcome strongholds. And these things that I've mentioned today are strongholds. And it is a lie that you have to be trapped in them for the rest of your life. Jesus wants to give you victory over those strongholds. And so I hope that you'll click on that free resource and that you will move through uh, peace and love and forgiveness and breaking off those strongholds in your life. So my last question for you, 
How do I respond in love for myself? And how do I respond in love to others? You know, if I was going to give you a suggestion, if you were asking me, how do I respond in love for myself? My suggestion would be work through. Work through your strongholds. Take the time and work through your past. Take the time and work through pride and unforgiveness and positioning and jealousy and work through those things to reflect God's character, to step into his identity. And what will happen is it will affect how you respond to others in love. Maybe you make somebody some cupcakes Maybe you buy somebody a coffee. Maybe you shovel a driveway. Maybe you stop by and just visit somebody. Maybe you pay for somebody's school tuition. Maybe you fill up a student's gas tank. Maybe you write somebody a letter. Maybe you give somebody a phone call. Maybe you buy your neighbor's groceries. Maybe you help with the Christmas hampers. Maybe you invite somebody into your home next Sunday. Love makes a way. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, and our Messiah for what you have done for us, that you have made a way in every single one of our hearts. And we know that you are the only one that can save us from our sin. And if you are watching today and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, I just say, do it now. You will not regret this. Surrender your life to him. Tell him your mistakes and ask him to forgive you. He is enough. He is more than the mistakes you have made. There is nothing unforgivable. Love makes a way. And if you have Christ in your heart, oh, I, just, I just say, please say yes. Step into love with God and a deeper level, a deeper intimacy. Confess. Let him show you those spots in your heart that you've been holding on to that you didn't want him to touch. <laughs> Maybe today is the day where you're like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be brave and courageous like Esther, and I'm going to let you go there. I'm going to let you touch those, those hurts that are so deep, and we're going to deal with those today because I want breakthrough. I don't want to be imprisoned by my past. I want breakthrough and freedom and victory. So church, I, I just pray that you will be bold and step into God's love. Let him shine on your past. Let him clean out your heart and create in you a new clean heart. So Jesus, love us lavishly the way that only you do. Let us be a conduit of your perfect love to the people around us, Lord God. Let us walk in obedience. Let us have the peace that comes from the Prince of, of Peace, Lord Jesus. You are holy. Jesus, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you. Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. 
Jesus, I surrender everything to you, God. I surrender my husband and my kids, my home, my address, my car, my boat. <laughs> I surrender all of it to you, Jesus. All of it. My position, my ministry, the way that I love, I surrender all of it to you, God. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, Jesus. Don't let me walk away from here unchanged, but break my heart, God, for the things that I've been holding on to and not confessing to you, Jesus. Shine your light in there, Lord God. I need you. I need you. I need you. I am desperate for you, God. I love you, God. I love you. All of this is for you. All of this is for you. I worship you. You are holy, holy, holy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.